Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Innovating Church podcast, the the Church Innovations podcast. I'm here with uh, Casey and uh, Patrick and Wes, and we are uh, talking again about their wonderful book, How Change Comes to Your Church, a guidebook for church innovations. And um, so let us uh, begin with a word of prayer. Um, Wes, would you pray us in today? Sure. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we know that your word comes alive through the power of your spirit to do its work within our hearts and within the world you so love. So make us open to what we hear, that we may attend to what you desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, Wes. Um, so this is part two of our How Change Comes to Your Church uh, double feature. And uh, last time, Pat had promised us that we would talk about something very important, uh, the dwelling in the word uh, piece of the puzzle of change and what it means to listen to the Holy Spirit. So understanding that uh, our listeners will come from a variety of backgrounds and you know, dwelling and word uh, are some commonly thrown around terms. Uh, as I understand it, in this book uh, and in practice, dwelling in the word is a very specific process, right? Not just carrying a Bible around with you or having one in the room where you're having meetings. There's a there's an outline that uh, that you like to use. Uh, Pat, could you tell us a little bit about? what dwelling is in the word is as you refer to it in the book. Well, one of the key things is that you have to see that it fits within this basic uh, journey that uh, Wes and I have been talking about in the book in the first uh, uh, chapters, which is to create a safe or relatively safer holding environment uh, where people can uh, attend to the basic questions of discernment facing them and, 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 and really uh, seek and long for uh, what is God's preferred and promised future. I could go into some detail in why that re requires a massive shift in a modern culture where our tendency is to think of the Bible as an object to be used for something else or a tool. But in this case, what we want is for the scriptures, for God's word to become our imagination, our way of seeing our world. And not through some mystical thing, but for us to actually dwell within the scripture for a long enough period of time, over months, years, so that we begin to see the world the way that scripture does. Uh, and that that is in itself very transforming. The, the problem, of course, for most of us is we lose control. If, instead of using the Bible to do something we want to do, we end up being used by scripture in ways we can't control. And, and uh, if we want to enter this uh, liminal space, uh, then we we need to not be in control. 
but it needs to be safe. It, it has to be a place in which people uh, don't think like they're going to be used or beat up or spiritually abused. This is the thing I worry the most about in, in a lot of our contemporary uh, quote-unquote spirituality is we're, we're making people very vulnerable in ways that are, are inappropriate. Uh, the, the word, dwelling in the word can set boundaries. And that's why they're clear rituals so that this can, at least as best as we can think, create some ritual structure that creates a relatively safe space. That's why there, there are periods of time of prayer. That's why there are periods of silence. Uh, this is why the first act is not to say what we think it is to uh, listen in silence and then listen another person into free speech. It's about breaking down the pattern of the self is the only meaning maker and discovering that the presence of God uh, is deeply there in the face of the irreducible other, the, the stranger. These rituals actually are essential to creating that holding space, that, that ritual uh, liminality, because that, uh, ritual can protect us from harming ourselves or one another. It's not the enemy. It, it can be a, a real gift. And in the midst of that, and this is the wonder of it, is ordinary folk begin to experience this is God speaking to us here. Uh, we're not, you know, we, we don't have a corner on the truth. This is deeply about other people. It's deeply about listening. It's deeply about following a set of rules. It's knowing how to play this game called dwelling in God's word. But the amazing thing is, is once we really let go, uh, and let God communicate to us, God does. Yeah, I, I think it's really important for the listeners uh, to understand that dwelling in the word is a way of not expecting the Bible or biblical text to say something. We're expecting it to do something. And we're opening up a, a, a space where that can happen. We're not trying to uh, give a set of answers. We're trying to encourage questions. We're trying to deepen listening. And we're trying to build community in a way that then infects and shapes the fabric of our other time together. So there's a there's a whole process, Pat rightly calls it a ritual, spelled out in the book and readily available through Church Innovations on its website for how you do this. But we want to emphasize here what it is trying to do. So in practice, uh, as I've um, engaged in dwelling in the word with my congregation, I've noticed uh, the most difficult part of the process uh, seems to be uh, 
reporting on or conveying another person's thoughts, where they got stuck, what the questions they had. Uh, could either of you speak on why it's so important that you are not saying where you got stuck, where God challenged you, but where uh, your reasonably friendly uh, stranger got stuck in the text? Well, one of the greatest challenges in our our, our modern society uh, is the the lack of trust. Uh, the, the lack of trust in human community, in institutions. I mean, we look at the, the crisis of trust. The beginning of trust among human beings is the capacity to listen and to really hear another person and to act in response to that hearing by listening in a way that you build trust. There is no substitute for trust when it comes to being human and being in community. There just is no substitute for it. And uh, it's very difficult for the average uh, person in, in modern society to even walk up and say hi to a stranger. I mean, genuinely someone they don't know. It is massively more difficult for them to listen that stranger into free speech. Uh, and yet we know the capacity to do that uh, is transforming. It's just simply transforming. Uh, without it, Community doesn't exist. With it, community can be born. Uh, I could go deeper in this, but uh, this is about the most primitive things uh, uh, that make possible human community, much less the church. So I, our dream in dwelling in the word, no matter what, is that people be liberated emancipated to actually hear their neighbor, to listen their neighbor into free speech. If the church were to become only known as that, what a transformation there would be. I mean, just that alone, I guarantee you, would make a massive difference. Now, dwelling in the word does a lot more than that, but that's, and it's hard because we're breaking out of this notion that as individuals, we are the chief meaning makers. Mm -hmm. it, it's so deep in what it is to be modern. So uh, to follow up with that, one of the challenges that, that I've had in uh, doing dwelling with my, my folks is that, um, well, they don't know what to say. Um, so it's not, I don't think it's that they don't have anything to say. It's that for some reason, they don't want to say it out loud. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're, they're always looking to me to sort of fill in yeah. for them. And, and does this go back to trust again? Is it that we're so ingrained to, if we don't have the right answer at church, we're just not going to say any answer. Um, where does, where well, talk about that. You know, I think, Rachel, that I think that's 
exactly uh, a way into one of the deepest things that dwelling in the word tries to do. And that is to give voice to all who are parts of a body, in this case, a group together uh, that puts everyone in an equal space before one another and before God. And by insisting that we ask questions, uh, we try to get the dynamic out of the hands of the expectation for the pastor to always give the answers. Now, there's a clear place for, you know, preaching, biblical teaching, et cetera. But what, but what is so needed is, is for those in a congregation to trust the fact that their response to God's word does not have to be mediated or checked or censored by their pastor. It can be shared in a way that then is, is, becomes part of a way of enriching a whole group. And it, it, and it allows congregational members to begin to feel that they actually have voice and, and, have, and have something to say that another one of them, another one of their members is listening to deeply, listening to in ways that, that you know, they often, people can be in church for 10, 15 years and they do dwelling in the word and they'll say, no one's ever really listened to me like that. So I, I think I understand completely the hesitation that you're identifying. And it's part of, I think, the way in which these practices, like dwelling in the word, are trying to change the culture. You know the famous uh, expression, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch. Um, and, and if all you're doing is trying to focus on getting the strategy right and not attending to the culture, you're, you're not going to open the body up to really transformational change. Um, the other thing that I see dwelling in the word doing in this way, it infuses conversation with biblical metaphors and stories and examples. We begin to think about our the life of a, of a congregation in, in, in ways that aren't just secular and aren't just formed by, you know, the common practices around organization. Um, but rather, you know, a congregation begins to see itself as part of God's people on a continuing journey that is, that is uh, revealed, shown to us, in, through the word, but then we're invited to be on that same journey. Um, and we talk about it in that way. You know, we talk about crossing over the River Jordan. Uh, we talk about trying to discover the way to the new land, or we talk about being lost in the wilderness, or we talk about feeling like we're a group of disciples in a boat, in a storm, terrified about whether we're going to survive and then we see, we, and then we see Jesus coming to us and offering to help us step out of the boat. You, you see, you, be, you begin to take the, 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 the biblical 
metaphors and images and, and, and words and, and, and infuse them into the way you think about your life together. So I, and that's, that, that's the other hope of what dwelling in the word can do. Now, Wes, there's a, dynam there's a dynamic here that I want to get at that Wes has pointed to. I do not believe most clergy, and I surely don't think most of our members recognize the power of shame in yep. the life of the church. And uh, I have to tell you this story because it is the truth about why I took on this topic 40 some years ago. My mom and my grandma uh, were the people who put me on their knee and said, Jesus loves me. And I believed them. It's a fact. The Bible never said a thing to me, right? Uh, long before the Bible ever said anything, my mama and my grandma told me about God's love in Jesus. Now, in the, in the troubles of life, in the blessings of life, those two women would cite scripture just exactly the way Wes said, you know? Oh, this is like we're in a boat and we're going down, or this is like, but uh, I would say, so have you decided, why, why don't you go to the Bible class, Mama? Oh, I don't know enough. Yeah, yeah. My, my grandma, the same way, right? Uh, the, the fear of being shown to be ignorant about something that is so holy and so important. And the power of shame in those Bible studies was overwhelming. And when it, if it could work with those two women, right? It's at work in, you know, the vast majority to to, to emancipate ourselves from the power of shame is one of the greatest challenges every local church faces. Uh, dwelling in the word in this manner begins that emancipation. It, it's not a substitute for the cross. It's a way, and I just love the way Wes put this. It's not getting a new point or having a new saying or a new insight, it's doing something to us. It's changing us in our reality. So you both did a very, very good job of um, explaining the importance of dwelling in the word for the community. And um, I felt like naturally segueing into the next uh, chapter, uh, sharing the journey. What, um, what specifically do you mean by that? Uh, obviously, dwelling in the Word is a great, great way to, to get that going, but um, what more can you tell us about sharing the journey? Well, I'll start there and, and say um, one of the challenges facing uh, the process of um, transformational congregational change is that congregations want to simply believe they can do this alone and believe that they are utterly unique. And every congregation does have its own uniqueness, but that we're, you know, we can know 
best and we can figure this out. And it's a very, very American way of thinking. Um, one of the things we're trying to put forth in this chapter is that turning to enter into God's future and to discover what God is up to uh, is, is one in which, first of all, you have to also do what we sometimes call dwell in the world. You, you have to also enter into the, enter into the uh, realities of the society where the congregation finds itself and really ask fresh questions, not about what is your congregation doing, but rather what is God doing outside of the congregation in society where you find itself, where you can join, uh, and who might be partners with you in that because you can't do it alone. And then at the same time, I know, you know, Pat, Pat will, will say and often sort of describe me as a, being very involved ecumenically, and I have. I've, I've had long time ecumenical experience and commitments, but people often ask me why. And of course, there's an easy answer saying, you know, th these divisions are terrible and it's the desire and prayer of Jesus that we be one, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a deeper reason. Uh, I become convicted that no congregation and no denomination can discern God's future without being present to other parts of the body. I mean, it's, it's really the way it's supposed to work. Um, and when I would be sharing with the, uh, with Reformed Church America folks about why the RCA should be involved ecumenically, it wouldn't be just to fulfill some, you know, proof text in the 17th chapter of John. It would be because for us to discover what God has in store, we, we really have to know uh, what the ELCA is doing. And we have to know what the Assemblies of God is doing. We have, I mean, we, we, have, we have to know more than just our own experience. It's the same way for congregations. Um, uh, that's why, you know, you'll find that uh, Church Innovations has been so committed to what we call partnership for missional church. Uh, you know, a process whereby congregations can walk with other congregations together. Um, so that's, I think, I, I think the first part, I'll give you, if you don't mind, uh, Casey, I'll give you a quick example. So I was, uh, you know, in this position of general secretary of my denomination, and, and uh, a couple of us, you know, we'd have these meetings with other so-called heads of churches, presiding bishops, presidents, et cetera, of the, of the main denominations. We just all talk about business. And we finally said, you know, we should gather together in more of a retreat context, spend time with each other, simply sharing what our year has been like, have a day of silence, you know, which hardly any of us ever experienced, in which we pray for one another, and then come out of that celebrating communion, whatever, and then simply sharing. What that did in ways we never expected was to create uh, these bonds of how we, we suddenly discovered none of us 
as as denominational leaders were we're in we're in any kind of isolation that we were in common journeys that we needed to share and be part of if we were really going to get to where God was beckoning us. I think that same question is before each congregation, and frankly, it, it it's also before each member. I mean, it, that's what community is supposed to do. I I I I don't know how theologically sound this is, but I have often said that the Spirit of God is present with God's people in proportion to the presence of the diversity gathered of God's body. More spiritual power comes when more of the body is brought together. And that's how the Holy Spirit functions. Uh, so that's maybe a gone down a rabbit trail, Casey, but that's, that's, I think, what Pat and I partly mean when we say we need to share the journey. Actually, I, I want to jump on there and, and hear for a moment, uh, be in particular a theologian. That is, I want to thank God first, and uh, I want to strongly affirm uh, Wes's last uh, assertion. I think if you read the scripture, it'll bear out that, uh, first of all, uh, the, the traditional language of the Father is the will of God realized in the body of Christ, in this body of the second person of the Trinity, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even within God, God's identity is in indifference. Now, that is so radically different than the philosophy that dominated the ancient world whether it's uh, the very sophisticated form like, like Plato or just the more common sense street thing. The, the way I know the truth is that which already agrees with who I am. Identity is in sameness. The very heart of God, the very nature of the Christian God is the identity indifference, a community of truly others who dance with one another by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that the church is made in that likeness. Pentecost is, is literally, literally overwhelming diversity in unity without the erasure of difference. There is no Christian Esperanto. There is no shared Christian language. There is only the work of the Spirit to draw people together to point to that which God has done in Jesus, right? The story of, of, of the book of Acts, the story of Paul's letters, like it or not, we're talking about huge conflict as the church diverse experiences diversity, but it's precisely in the heart of that that the Spirit works. This is the core. It's not an accident. It is of the very heart of what it is to be Christian and to be caught being Christian. Now, there are practical terms to this. Very early on, I remember in 1994, in one of our first external studies to our work, we discovered that congregations learn more from one another than they did from us. Mm -hmm. This was a little discouraging. I mean, you know, we were trying to, to be the experts to come in and, and and help these congregations solve their problems. 
And uh, on the whole, well, they learned a few things from us, but when we put them together, they learned more from one another. Then we discovered, oh, bad news, they don't want to learn from one another. If they did, they would, right? Just think if congregations, if a church council would say, oh, you know, uh, we're going to go over and we're going to spend the next year learning from uh, <laughs> another congregation that seems to be able to do this stuff better than we can, uh, you know, how wonderful it'd be. But does it happen? No, it doesn't happen. Congregations don't want to learn from one another. Three, if they want to learn from one another, how do they do it? They go to some big church that's uh, been successful at doing rump, 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 rump. And they, you know, they don't, they don't want to miss hearing all the, and I'm sadly in almost every single one of these instances, having attended these conferences, these so-called teaching congregations do show and tell. The worst form of learning for adults ever invented. Show and tell, right? And so the vast majority, to tell you the truth, of the pastors and land who show up there either run away with this little thing they're going to try and impose upon their congregation, this model of small group, that view of worship, etc., or worse, feeling like they're failures because they can't do it like those people can. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the third point we learn. Fourth, it takes the kind of work we're talking about, sharing the journey to create the holding place, the holding environment for congregations to learn from one another. Well, saved ourselves, we still had a reason to exist. And furthermore, we found out that when we put people in an ecumenical setting, they learn more from one another than that they, and then they would learn if they were only working with their own denomination. We should have expected that if we followed the doctrine of the Trinity, especially the doctrine of the Holy Spirit as the identity and difference. But, yep. you know, it's a nice idea, I suppose. We didn't really think that's the way God worked. Thank you. So for our last um, kind of topic or the last chapter of your book, I want to give the last word here to Wes. Uh, the chapter title is Being Transformed Practices for Missional Change. And my question for you is, uh, the chapter starts out, churches change, it is inevitable. The life of the church is within an ever-rolling stream. The forces of that stream create changes in the church and in the world it serves. So I guess uh, what I would find helpful is, Wes, can you give us a definition or uh, the difference between regular change and missional change? Sure. Um, and the introduction to that chapter will give a clue to the fact that both Pat and I love to fly fish. So our, 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 our examples are... Uh, are often drawn from such experience. Uh, change is inevitable, and especially with COVID-19, every congregation is changing whether they like it or not. That's the reality that we are now in. And the question will be, what kind of change will that will occur? Will it be 
technical change that is just grasping for ways to survive? Or will it be adaptive change that is learning how in you know this the lectionary passage that we happen to have for the last Sunday before we recorded this is this marvelous story from uh, Matthew 14 of the disciples in this boat scared and terrified to death struggling to hang on and of course biblical scholars will say that that boat represents the church and Jesus comes and what does he do he invites them to step out of the boat into liminal space. And that's that same invitation that comes to the church when you talk about missional change. We're invited to step out of the boat into the change and the mission that God is already doing in the world. And, and uh, we simply say, uh, in kind of summarizing the, the, the book itself, that they're, they're really six habits, six practices that help shape the culture to do that. And the first is what we've already talked about, dwelling in the word. Uh, the second is hospitality in its deepest meaning, where you not only give, but receive. Um, the third is that we announce the coming reign of God. I mean, we, we, we really have the courage to say, we know what God intends. Um, the fourth uh, is that we nurture a climate of discernment. Uh, you know, you, you didn't hear us go on a bender about Robert's Rules of Order, which we, which we do in the book. Um, the, we, we stress so strongly the way to change the way we make our decisions, uh, to change the way we change and to have a culture of discernment. Um, the, the fifth is, a, is an absolute commitment to participate in God's mission in the world. Uh, people, you know, there's been this long discussion about missional church that Patrick's been one of the leaders in, and then it's become almost like a catchphrase. And you say, what really are we talking about? Um, a missional church is one that defines its life and identity through its participation in God's mission in the world. That's it defines its life and its identity in that way. And the sixth is, is, is simply what we call readiness. And that's, and this is, you know, this is the most mysterious at all. And all of our work with congregations and denominational systems, there, there comes a time when there's simply a readiness and openness for something new to happen. And you can't control it, as Pat says, but you have to be attentive to it. And, and there are practices that help you ask those questions. So those are, you know, that, that, that's what the last chapter does. It kind of summarizes the practices which we think if a congregation embodies them, you're gonna have a good chance of transformational change happening. Thank you very much, uh, Patrick and Wes, uh, for your time today for those answers. Again, I want to encourage everyone, uh, if you haven't already picked up this book, check out your local bookstore, Amazon or Erdman's.com, and pick up a copy of How Change Comes to Your Church, a guidebook for church innovation. Also on the CI website. 
It's also on the Church Innovations website where you can also find uh, information about uh, the different consulting and what uh, Church Innovations is up to in service of God and the church. As well as the forthcoming workshops. You're, you guys are hitting all the marks here. This is, uh, <laughs> check out our, our workshops. Uh, the first one, I believe, is September 19th. Uh, they were going to be in uh, different areas across the United States, but uh, we've adapted to making them digital. So wherever you are, you can sign up for the workshop and, a, and an even more in-depth conversation about this important topic. Patrick, would you play, pray for us, please? Let's pray. Lord, use this time, this conversation for your preferred and promised future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, thank you everybody for listening. We are Innovating Church, the Church Innovations Podcast, and we'll see you next time.